Our scripture reading for today is from 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 23, and then I'm going to read to chapter 4 and verse 6. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children. And you've overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, and he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. And we've been going through uh, the letter of 1 John leading up to Easter, and we're going to continue it today. And just uh, as a quick reminder, particularly for those of you just joining us, this letter is written somewhere around 85 or 90 AD, and John is probably around that old. So he's lived a life, he has seen a lot, been through a lot, and he's wanting to encourage this young church uh, living in a world that is... uh, increasingly getting dark as they live under the shadow of Rome and all of the persecution that that entails. And the purpose of this letter is to have the people of God live lives of joy in a world that's constantly draining joy and to know how it is that as Christians we can live as the children of God in cities where there is great indifference to God. And so this is why he's given this letter. He wants to encourage these Young uh, Christians who he's calling, very affectionately, he's calling them little children. And his style in this letter is circular. It's kind of like a spiral. It's a very short letter, but he keeps revisiting themes continually because repetition and reflection is a friend of learning. So he's talking about how we can enjoy fellowship with God, and then he starts threading through reasons that break our fellowship with God. And the love that we're supposed to have for each other in the church, our brothers and sisters, the sin that gets in the way of that. And he's revisiting all these sorts of themes. And then he comes to this concern, which he considers to be a threat, which is false teaching. False teaching about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he did, and the significance of of Christ. So I'm going to take this teaching this morning from this passage and break it down in two ways. uh, And we'll reflect on... On uh, two things. The first thing is the problem of Christ as a vague savior and dethroned king. That's what's going on here. He wants to address it. So we'll talk about that first. What's the problem of relating to Christ like he's a vague savior and hence a dethroned king? And then secondly, we're going to look at the significance of Christ as king and the life of joy that ensues. So first, let's look at this problem of the, vain savior, of the vague Savior and dethroning Christ as King. Uh, in verses um, 2 and 3, the problem at the time, and still is a problem today, is what John calls Antichrist uh, teaching about Jesus. And the problem was not coming from Rome, it wasn't coming from other uh, worldviews or other re- religious ideas. 
But teaching was coming from inside the church, so that was the problem, uh, the, the, the source of it. When there's, um, you know, the, the, the emperor worship of Rome is obvious, but false teachings about Jesus that are inside the church that dethrone Jesus, well, they're not obvious, but they're certainly insidious. And so this is what the, the concern is. So at the time, uh, the group was called Gnostics, if that's a new term uh, for you, those of you uh, who might be younger or exploring Christian faith. Gnosticism is essentially the idea of salvation through secret knowledge. This is what the Gnostics all believed. So they started with sort of a, 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 a Christian base, if you will, but they deviated from that with all sorts of different cultural ideas that sort of got massaged in. And so it's like, well, we have this sort of secret knowledge that we're being saved by. So it was confusing. The, the, the New Testament writings, they refer to it, but they don't get really specific about it. When you read historians like Craig Blomberg or N.T. Wright, um, you know, the, the, they, when, they, when they talk about Gnosticism, it's always vague because they, were, they lived in a polytheistic culture. So they were just grabbing all sorts of cultural ideas that were attractive to them and mixing it into Christianity. So that's the problem. And in verse 3, you see the term Antichrist shows up. This term is unique to John. It's in all of John's writings. Um, although the idea of Antichrist is elsewhere in Scripture. But John uses this. It, it simply means against Christ or in place of Christ. Um, and so this uh, is redefining you know, Jesus in a way that draws away from the, the way that Jesus actually um, asserted him, who, who he was. So there's a critical contrast I just want to point out real quick, and that's that he's using the term spirit of. You'll see that in the text there. Spirit of truth, spirit of error. It's interesting language that he's using. And what that teaches us is if it's a spirit of something, is that this is not just an academic problem. It's an appetite problem. Because when you're, if you're a child of God and you're, and you're indwelt by the spirit of God, which is how the text starts, and you love God, the spirit of something is ordering your loves. It's ordering your appetites. It's ordering your desires. It's ordering your whole life. And so we don't just have an academic problem here where it's like, oh, they just got some wrong ideas about Jesus. It's that fundamentally they love something else. They want something else. And they are now creating teaching that is now cohering with the thing that they wanted in the first place. It's a spirit of something. So that's interesting language, I think, teaches us something important. You'll see that, it'll borrow a term from uh, the modern philosopher uh, James K. Smith. He would say, you know, we're not brains on sticks. The hierarchy of the human experience is not that our intellect is at the top. It's that our heart, the soul of, of humanity, the things that we desire, our appetites, they're actually at the top. You hear me quote uh, the, the Bishop of Canterbury uh, often, uh, Anselm, who, or Cranmer, sorry, who, to summarize his teaching, he would say that what the heart wants, the mind justifies, and the will chases after. So that's that whole spirit of going on here. There's a lot of ideas around Jesus that are, uh, that are false, and they're, and they're um, causing problems in the church, and, and uh, they're going after it. So the deconstruction of all of this, you see that he's very clear about it. He's like, look, this is simple. They're saying that God came in the flesh, and if they're saying God came in the flesh, that's true, and that's, you know, solid teaching, and that's how Jesus described himself, God incarnate. The resurrection of Jesus Christ points to the fact that it's God incarnate. The false teaching is saying, well, he's not God in the flesh. Jesus, God would not get 
God would not get you know, involved with this messy material stuff. Well, if he's not God in the flesh, then that means that he's not the Messiah. The Christ in Greek, Christos, the anointed one, the chosen one, is the Greek, of the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. The one who would come and deliver, the deliverer, the chosen one, the anointed one. And so you can see how this Gnostic idea about simply saying, well, Jesus didn't come in the flesh, it starts to unravel and undo Christ as king. As, as God who throughout history for millennia had been moving in saving grace, depart uh, us uh, apart from and despite the constant failures of his people turning and worshiping other things to come and save humanity and grace, it starts to undo and unravel all of this stuff. Because if he's not the Messiah and he's not the Christ, then that means he's not the king. And if he's not the king of if he's not the king of Israel, who God incarnate means is also the king of the world. If if he's if he's not that, then that means there's there's no kingdom and there's no rule. And if there's no rule, then that means that conveniently I have this vague savior that's sort of forgiving me for my garden variety naughtiness, but I can dismiss him out of my life as king. And I can dismiss his word out of my life as rule. And I can now redefine sort of the way that I live as sort of a disembodied Christianity apart from the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. So the Gnostic problem unraveled into all these sorts of things. And the problem then is the same as the problem today where when you, when you reject Christ as king, the one who of course scandalously saved us by his grace, when you reject him as king, you reject his rule, uh, that produces two different kinds of churchgoers. And that's what John's wanting to avoid here. It's still the problem today. Two different kinds of churchgoers that are a problem. The first is the legalistic churchgoer, and the other one is the lawless churchgoer. In this immediate context, it's, it's, it's going down the road of the lawless church, churchgoer. The legalist and the lawless both dethrone Christ in two different ways. The legalist dethrones Christ because grace is not music to their ears when they hear about grace. When they hear about grace, it's like nails on a chalkboard because at the end of the day, the legalist does not believe that what Christ did was sufficient. The legalist believes at their core that what Christ did got them started and they, through their continued obedience, not Christ's perfection, are in the end saving themselves, making themselves the main actor. And so the problem with legalism is you wake up feeling guilty. And if you talk to churchgoers who are legalists, you never feel better. You always, you always feel guilty. Because their, ideas of, their idea of holiness, living a life of holiness and obedience, is, is never encouraging and inspiring from gratitude. It's always motivated by an underlying, bubbling cauldron of toxic guilt. So that's the problem of legalism, but that's not actually the problem here. The problem is lawlessness, over in the other ditch. Where, where the problem of the lawless churchgoer, who dethrones Christ as king, um, is you know now... You can sift through the teaching of the Bible like you're going through the bulk food section and you pick the parts that you want and you dismiss as, you dismiss as whatever, you know, the culture at the time or whatever. You dismiss the things that prick the conscience and sort of convict. At the end of the day, the, the lawless churchgoer is able to sort of pick and choose these things and reject Christ as king and... Uh, this is the problem of it. You know, the other, uh, not too long ago, I think it was last week maybe, my little niece was at our house in the kitchen 
and she had a little fork in her hand. And at our island, there's an electrical outlet, which is basically at eye height for her. And I, where we were talking, and I happened to glance down and see that she was looking at the, the socket, the electrical outlet with the fork, and she was like, this looks like that's pretty much just fit right in there. And she just went like this. And so because I saw what was happening, I instinctively just grabbed her wrist, and I said, no, 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 don't do that, Emma. No, no, don't do that. Well, as you can imagine, she looked up at me and she said, thank you for your wise and loving and caring, yay, even pastoral care over my soul. No, she didn't. She didn't want to talk to me for the rest of the day. She was like, this guy, I got no use for you in my life. She was just upset, sad, angry, confused. And so the lawless churchgoer will come across a text, any text, where God in his grace and wisdom for human flourishing wants to guide our lives and say, no, 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 we don't sleep with whoever we want. Our bodies are not playgrounds, they're temples. We have no use for that. No, 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 hold on. All your money isn't actually yours. As, as a child of God, God will take care of you. Go for a walk, look at the birds, look at the flowers, you're good. He's going to take care of all your needs. All the, this, you're actually a steward of this. So be generous with it. Think about the needy in your city. Think about the need of the, for the proclamation of the gospel in the church. Think about those who in, in the congregation who can benefit, who can... Like, how can you use your resource to just be a blessing and love other people? No, 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 it's not yours. We cry at that, we don't like that. Oh, no, 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 hold on. Your time? Your, your, your schedule? <laughs> don't use helpful conversations around self-care as microwaved and regurgitated versions of selfishness and just live a selfish, inward curve myopic life under the name of self-care. No, 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 no. Give your life away. See, when the lawless can deconstruct Jesus easily. And so while the Gnostics weren't teaching anything nearly as specific as the illustrations I'm giving now, it erodes the cross-shaped life of the Christian, the cross-shaped life of the kingdom, the cross-shaped life of the church, and it becomes something else entirely different. So as the adopted children of Christ's kingdom, uh, we want to live into our family values, of course, right? And so uh, there's a small and striking phrase here that I think summarizes everything that I'm uh, saying. It shines a spotlight on the easiest way to identify false teaching about Jesus, and it's in verse 5. And, it, and, and what, what he says about the false teaching is the world hears them. That's a very telling phrase. Because when Jesus was teaching about his kingdom, it challenged everybody. And false teaching challenges nobody. Jesus' teaching of the kingdom that he was going to bring, he had to, use par- he had to use parables and paint pictures because it was so outside the box of the culture. He's painting this life where you're actually so liberated and free in your soul, you can give your life away. 
Like we can give our time and care. I mean, I'm not talking about exasperating yourself and giving your life away to a thousand people where you crumble on the ground. And that, that would not be loving or wise. And our God is a God of love and wisdom and flourishing. So he's not calling you to destroy yourself. When I say give your life away, I'm talking about a constant outward posture of agape self-emptying love that, that is actually continually empowered and replenished by the joy that this entire letter is actually about. The, the joy that is constantly being refilled because we are abiding and connected to the source of joy and the source of life. So it's all joyous. But the phrase, the, the, the phrase that is so telling in verse 5 says, the world hears them. Christ's teaching about the kingdom, counterintuitive. False teaching about Jesus, totally intuitive. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. What the scriptures teach about identity, sexuality, generosity, mercy, justice, totally counterintuitive. What the culture has to say about those things? Well, that makes sense. Well, this is amazing teaching about Jesus because, amazingly, it's what I wanted in the first place. So, thank you for that. Do you see this? The world hears them. The world hears it. That's how he describes it. So, it's a tremendous marker for us to consider, huh? Am I sitting under the wise guidance of God's word or am I standing over it? Am I using a magisterial use of reason where I'm like, I really need to understand this so my life can conform to the image of Christ? Or is it a magisterial use of reason where I'm like, I'm just going to sort of impose whatever my thoughts and feelings and ideologies are at the moment. I'm going to just impose these into the text. A fancy thing we like to call in the biz called eisegesis. I'm not trying to get anything out. I'm putting all kinds of things in. And so... The world hears that kind of teaching. It is unlike uh, the picture that Jesus was painting uh, throughout his, um, his parables and his teaching. But more, most, most significantly about him, God incarnate. So let's move on to that. The significance of Christ as king and the life of joy that actually ensues from Christ as king, which is the point of the whole letter. Verse 4, he says, you know, you've overcome them. You've overcome this false teaching. In other words... As recipients of the letter, this is proof that you haven't taken the fool's gold. These ideas about Jesus just being another prophet or these ideas. I mean, the Gnostics were saying Jesus was a man. He was a prophet. And then at his baptism, the Holy Spirit, God sort of indwelled him mysteriously. And then he was on the cross. God can't die. So the spirit of God leaves Jesus. And then this human being called Jesus of Nazareth dies on the cross. So the Gnostics had ways of sort of separating it. Basically say like God would not come and die. But we have to understand that at the core of Christianity is that our God did come and die. He did not just send another teacher in a long line of other teachers. He came himself to do what only he could do, which was to atone for the sin of his beloved creation that was beautiful and yet irreversibly broken. And so they've overcome this false teaching. Christ is the anointed one. He is Israel's Messiah, the, the one who uh, saved them out of Egypt is the picture of the greater exodus of the one that would save us out of slavery to sin and death. And here we are in Eastertide, which in the church calendar is the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. It's celebration. Lent, 40 days leading up to Easter, a, a, a season of reflection and contemplation. But then the Eastertide is celebration of Christ and the kingdom. And what does the kingdom look like? It looks like a cross. What is the significance of what that means and how it shapes our life? Well, Jesus could not begin to heal the world unless he provided an antidote for the infection of sin that was in the world. And so all of Jesus' public 
career and his healing and his forgiveness, everything that he did was pointing towards what he was going to do when God becomes king. And when I say that phrase, I mean he becomes king enthroned on, not what anybody would expect, but enthroned on the cross. To borrow from N.T. Wright, uh, historian, he would say, when Jesus wanted to fully explain what his forthcoming death was going to be all about, he didn't give them a theory. He didn't even give them a set of scripture texts. He gave them a meal. It was the Passover meal, this meal with a radical difference. Instead of the Passover pointing backward to the sacrifice uh, through which God had rescued his people in Egypt, at the Last Supper, Jesus is now pointing forward to the greatest sacrifice, his sacrifice, through which he would rescue his people in our corruption to sin. This is, this is the ultimate exodus. This is the ultimate exile. When you and I think about the exodus and we read the exodus, we think about it and read it from the perspective of the people of the children of Israel and of their experience. What was, what was the experience of the people of God? But underneath the experience, underneath the exodus, is the deeper, darker story that makes sense of all of it. And the deeper, darker story underneath the experience of the people of God was the powers of the world exalted themselves against the creator God and the creator God would not be mocked forever. That's, what, that's the underlying undercurrent motivating the exodus. That the creator God is going to be, come as a redeeming God and a saving God. And so he will not be mocked forever. When you think about the significance of this, the significance of our great, greater uh, exodus globally through all nations historically as God does his saving work through Jesus Christ. I just want to draw our attention to, contrary to the Gnostic message here in this text we just read, the Antichrist saying that Jesus was just another man. Consider Christ's last word on the cross, which were, it is finished. John is saying to the children of the recipients of this letter, John is saying, Jesus Christ is God. That's what he's saying. And the significance of this is that as Christ is on the cross, his last words are, it is finished. This is this echo from Genesis where the God who accomplished creation on the sixth day of creation, all of his creative work is finished. And Jesus, at the end of all of his redemptive work, says it is finished. And on the seventh day of creation, God rests. And on the seventh day of the week of the crucifixion, Christ is in the tomb and God rests. And you and I gather each week to celebrate rest. That the creator God is the redeeming God. That he is bringing everything full circle to restore all things. And so John wants that church to live in light of that. I want our church, I want us all to be living in light of this. Of what is accomplished. Of what is finished. The beauty of this rest. That we can celebrate him and trust him and live into this reality. You know that Jesus... um, the scriptures about Jesus are always assuming that the, the, the creator wanted the world to be ordered and ruled by his image-bearing humans. In Genesis and Revelation, and I said this on the Easter weekend, it's this image of a temple, of heaven and earth kissing. That's what you get in Genesis. That's what's happening in Revelation. That Eden is a temple. That God comes and dwells with man. 
and we're supposed to cultivate civilization and use all of our gifts and our abilities and our innovation to create a society where there is human flourishing in a glorious reflection of our Savior. And these cities that we have built, while there's beauty and bright spots, they're like a parody of what God always intended because of the ir- you know, inescapable brokenness in the world. But in the end, in Revelation, that temple is seen again where God comes and restores all things and raises us from death to enjoy it. But in between now and then, you and I live as mobile temples. You and I live as those who are indwelt by the power of the Spirit. And we're called as we pray each week that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That His will would be done in our lives and in our families and with our friendships and in our businesses and on campus. That the way in which God always intended that we reflect His love and grace would happen now on earth as it is in heaven. That will only be completed, of course, at the return of Christ. The world is terribly out of joint, and only the great physician could put that joint back into place. But you and I are ministers, and you and I are called to live out the implications of his kingship, the implications of his lordship, that we bend our knee to the glory of our, of our Savior. And so, with Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom has come in power. It's a door that got opened that can never be shut. And it certainly didn't look the way that anybody ex- expected it to look. The disciples were looking at the cross and thought they were looking at the worst possible scenario. But in the mind of God, they were actually looking at the best possible scenario. So God has a way of working in, in, in uh, uh, his majestic redemption in the world in ways that we can't even conceive. Hope was definitely realized at the cross, but it was redefined in the process. And so now this new kingdom has emerged that you and I are a part of. That John wants that, that little audience there under Rome to live out the implications of, of a king and a kingdom and kingdom rule, just as you and I are, to live this out. But we're to do this with the power of this self-emptying, sacrificial, agape love. And as I'm saying all this, some of you may feel to yourself like you are unqualified. I don't know if I'm up to this. I failed miserably at this. And I hear you and I feel that myself. We all have various forms of, you know, kingdom of God imposter syndrome. But we're all like, oof. Some days I look in the mirror and I say, praise God for your work in my life. But other days I look in the mirror and I go, I don't know if anything's happened. I don't know that I'm changing at all. And so maybe as I'm calling you to the implications of this text of the king and his rule, you might feel some of those things. But you know, this whole gospel story, this narrative of Christ and his resurrection is this launching of a renewed people of God. And at the center of it, there's this element, you know, it's incomprehensible that you've got these deeply flawed and failing disciples, but then they are stunned and reanimated by their faith in the resurrected Christ. And they are moved deeply, energized into obedience by the Spirit. If you look at verse 24 of chapter 3, it talks about the love of God, the abiding with Christ, that abiding language, the fact that we are temples. I'm going to close with this. Verse 4, he encourages that little church, and I want to encourage this little church. He says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. This encouragement that you and I don't need to be driven by fear. Fear that drives us to either you know, sniveling or swaggering. We don't need to be a community that is sort of sniveling with the sort of language like, you know, 
the church is losing ground and the like, oh, we gotta and we gotta and there's, there's this sniveling attitude like oh we're loo we gotta everybody's attacking us of course everybody's attacking us I say that broadly speaking of course that's happening we've had we've this has been the case since the beginning of the birth of Christianity and so there's no reason for sniveling. I'm literally preaching the gospel in the belly of the municipal beast right now. So things could be a lot worse. You know, I'm like, hey, I'd like to come and preach in your gym. And the city's like, okay, here's your rental agreement. Send in your contract. So there's no room for any sniveling. Now, it might get, it might get worse. But again, it's, it's all fear-mongering. <laughs> What's going to happen next? And what will the government do? And uh, 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 what if it gets bad for Man, if the, if the government clamps down on Christianity in Canada like it did in ancient Rome, I'll tell you what happened because I've read the history books. Christianity will come explode in our country, in our nation. It'll go underground in lots of different ways. We have Zoom now. There's ways to... So there's no need for any sniveling, but there's also no need for swaggering. The other ditch of the church in church history were sort of swagger through the culture... We're better than everybody, and we're morally superior than our neighbors. And we turn our nose up at the stench that is all of the morals that are unlike our own. This enables us into this humble, yet confident and bold ministry in our city because Christ is King, because we are abiding in Him. We're not freaked out, fleeing, you know, fleeing into the category of escapism, but we're also not over in this other ditch of triumphalism. We get both of those ditches that have never been helpful historically in church history. We can be these ministers in Kitchener-Waterloo who love our neighbor, who bring the gospel to bear to our vocation, to whatever it is that we're doing, because we are ambassadors, we've got dual citizenship, we care about this city, we care about how our gifts matter on Monday in our places of work and employment, you students, what you're up to as you're getting yourself oriented for the future. All of it has this glorious divine significance because we are ministers coming into line in congruence with a kingdom that's actually going to be eternal, that isn't going away. And so to the degree that we can bring that love and care and joy uh, to our respective walks of life, this is a beautiful thing. We are his church, rescued by his cross, transformed into these kingdom ministers, and we're sharing in the vocation of Jesus Christ himself as we preach the good news of the gospel and of the kingdom. We are this royal priesthood going out commissioned and empowered by the Spirit. And we have very good news. We can announce to everybody in this city who is restless that there is rest for their restlessness, that the gospel is good at the deepest a center of human longing you will find the answer for the for the deepest longings of your soul emotionally and intellectually in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone you are of God little children and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world let's pray